everyone. I'm Ray Belli, and this is Words for Granted, a podcast that looks at how words change over time. If you love the podcast, you can show your support via Patreon. Just head over to patreon.com slash wordsforgranted, or follow the link under the contribute tab at wordsforgranted.com. For just a buck a month, which is less than what you'd pay for a bad cup of coffee, you'll gain access to contributors-only bonus episodes. Speaking of coffee, I've got a bunch of Words for Granted mugs that are fresh off the press and only available to Patreon supporters. For our current mini-series on words derived from Greek philosophy, I'll be posting a bonus episode on the word Stoic really soon. Thanks to Mariah, Tim, Glenn, and Oleg for their recent contributions. Alright, on to today's show, part three in a mini-series on words derived from Greek philosophy. In the year 399 BCE, the people of Athens sentenced the philosopher Socrates to death on counts of impiety and corruption of the city's youth. Before his trial and execution, Socrates had a reputation for going around the city-state and asking people profound and challenging questions that often just led to more profound and challenging questions. These were questions that your average Athenian citizen probably didn't want to think about, but the gadfly of Athens, as Socrates was known, relentlessly pressed on. Well, there was one not-so-average Athenian citizen who, on the contrary, loved Socrates' knack for profound and challenging questions. This was none other than Plato, who was a student of Socrates. Unlike Socrates, who never wrote anything down, Plato wrote down a lot, and as it turns out, Plato's writings are actually one of our main sources for the historical figure of Socrates. Plato transformed the real-life Socrates into a literary character that could espouse philosophical ideas through fictional dialogues with other contemporary Athenians. One of Plato's most famous works containing the literary character of Socrates is called The Apology of Socrates, and it takes place right before Socrates' aforementioned trial and execution. Although the Apology of Socrates is the most literal translation of the original Greek title, Apologia Socratos, the text is also known as Plato's Apology, or probably most commonly, just the Apology. Now, to the modern reader, the titles The Apology of Socrates and Plato's Apology have two very different implications. The first title, the Apology of Socrates, seems to suggest that the dialogue might be about an apology made by Socrates, presumably for his alleged crimes against Athens. On the other hand, the second title, Plato's Apology, would seem to suggest that Plato is the one making an apology on behalf of his beloved teacher. So, which of these two is correct? Is it Plato or Socrates who makes an apology in The Apology? Well, the answer is neither. In The Apology of Socrates, or Plato's Apology, or just The Apology, nobody apologizes for anything. The majority of The Apology consists of a legal speech given by Socrates in self-defense of the city's charges against him. Socrates provides one rational justification after another defending his position, but never once does he say, I'm sorry. That's because, in ancient Greek, the word apologia, which 
is indeed the etymological ancestor of the modern English word apology, meant a formal rhetorical defense of a position or action, usually given in a court of law. The modern English word apology is really a terrible translation of the ancient Greek word apologia, but most of the time that is how apologia is translated. Granted, if you're someone inclined to read an ancient Greek apology in the first place, you probably know that apology has a different meaning in this historical context, but it's still a misleading convention that translators have fallen into. In the legal system of ancient Athens, there were two formal orations that took place, the kategoria and the apologia. The kategoria was the plaintiff's accusation speech, and the apologia was the defendant's response to it. Although kategoria is generally translated into English as accusation, and rightfully so, kategoria is indeed the ultimate source of the modern English word category which, of course, has nothing to do with an accusation whatsoever. The etymology of the Greek word kategoria and its evolution into the modern English category is a can of worms unto itself, so I won't get into that here. Spoiler alert, it's very likely that this will be the topic of the next episode of Words for Granted. Now, you might be wondering why I'm covering apology in this mini-series on words derived from Greek philosophy. From what I've described, it sounds more like a legal term than a philosophical one, and to some degree this is true. However, I still think it's appropriate to include it in this series for a few reasons. First, the most historically famous use of the term is preserved in the title of Plato's Apology, which is, of course, a philosophical dialogue. Secondly, the word was not limited to the context of the legal system. Apologia also referred to a distinct genre of persuasive writing, which in the classical world would have been considered philosophical. By late antiquity, the genre of the apologia morphed into a style of literature written in defense of the Christian religion. We'll look more at Christian apologias in a minute, but first, let's do a quick breakdown of the actual etymology of apologia. The Greek apologia is a compound formed by two smaller words. Its first part, the prefix apo, had a variety of meanings such as from, away from, because of, back to, leaving, and off. Its second part, logia, meant pertaining to speech or the study of something. Sometimes etymology can offer a clear and satisfying insight into what a word originally literally meant, but that's not the case with apologia. It's hard to say what it originally literally meant. Away from speech? Because of speech? Speech that gives back? In most etymological dictionaries, the apo in apologia is defined as away from, but none of them and I really do mean none of them, offer a literal interpretation of the word. And that's probably because it's hard to pull a literal interpretation out of Apologia's smaller components. So your guess about what the word literally originally meant is as good as mine. Just for the record, the apo in apology is cognate with words such as apostle, apocryphal, and apostate. And the Logi, in apology, is cognate with words such as biology, psychology, neurology, etc., plus logic, log, 
as in a written record of something, and by extension of this, blog. Yes, if you dig deeply enough, blog actually comes from ancient Greek. As I already mentioned, the term apologia came to be affiliated with a genre of religious literature written in defense of the Christian faith. This genre began to emerge shortly after the death of Christ, and it was basically a continuation of the original Greek sense of the word, but taken out of the context of Greek law and grafted onto Christian theology. Interestingly, Christian apologists, as writer in this genre were known and are still known today, originally wrote their apologias with the intention of reconciling classical Greek philosophy with Christian theology. They didn't necessarily seek to reject Greek philosophy altogether. However, during the 2nd century CE through the Middle Ages, Christian apologists shifted their object of defense away from classical Greek philosophy and toward political authorities that questioned the validity of the one true God. Before the conversion of Rome to Christianity, it was common for Christian apologias to be addressed to pagan Roman emperors, though these emperors would almost certainly not have read them. Nowadays, the genre of Christian apologetics aims to defend Christian beliefs against anything that seeks to undermine them. One of the most famous Christian apologists of the 20th century was C.S. Lewis, but you probably know him as the author of The Chronicles of Narnia. Although the genre of Christian apologetics first emerged in the Greek-speaking eastern half of the Roman Empire, as Christianity spread to the empire's Latin-speaking western half, the genre of Christian apologetics spread with it. At this point, Latin had already borrowed the Greek word apologia in its original legal sense, and many Roman rhetoricians specialized in the genre of legal apologias, but now, in both the Latin-speaking and Greek-speaking halves of the empire, the predominant writers of apologias wrote in defense of Christianity. Many of early Christianity's most influential writers, such as St. Augustine and Justin Martyr, were considered apologists. The word apology first appears in the English written record during the early 16th century in a handwritten letter to Cardinal Thomas Woolley. It reads, quote, here is an apology made for the defense of the French king. End quote. Clearly, the sense of the word referring to self defensive rhetoric was still intact. English produced several literary apologies during this period, such as the Apology of Sir Thomas More Knight in 1533, the Apology of Johann Bale against a rank papist in 1555, and an apology or defense of those English writers and preachers which Cerberus the three-headed dog of hell chargeth with false doctrine under the name of predestination in 1566. Yes, that last one is a real title. In all of these works, someone is writing in defense of a position or belief, not saying they're sorry. The time period at which apology emerged in English gives us a clue that it very likely was borrowed directly from Latin. This may sound counterintuitive since Latin was the language of the long-dead Roman Empire, but here's why this makes sense. Most of the Latin-derived words in English entered the language via French in the wake of the Norman-French conquest of England in 1066. French is a daughter language of Latin, so naturally, the majority of the French language derives from Latin. 
these Latinate French loanwords entered English in the centuries immediately following the Norman Conquest, but by the 16th century, which is when apology first appears in English, the influence of French on English had died down. However, Latin continued to be used as the language of the church and of intellectual learning well into the 18th century, thus making it the more likely language of origin for a 16th century Latinate loanword in English. It's not a terribly important detail in the overall story, but the more you know, the more you know. The earliest usage of apology with a sense resembling our own appears in Shakespeare's 1590 play Richard III, in a line spoken by the play's namesake. Out of context, the line isn't that informative, so I'm going to read a longer excerpt. The character Buckingham says, quote, Famous Plantagenet, most gracious prince, lend favorable ears to our request, and pardon us the interruption of thy devotion and right Christian zeal. End quote. To which Richard III, aka the famous Plantagenet, responds, quote, My lord, there needs no such apology. I rather do beseech you pardon me, who, earnest in the service of my God, neglect the visitation of my friends, but leaving this, what is your grace's pleasure? End quote. In other words, Richard is in the middle of some religious prayers while Buckingham comes in to ask him a favor. Buckingham basically says, Pardon me, sir, I'm sorry for interrupting your prayers, and Richard literally says, My lord, there needs no such apology. Even though Shakespeare's modern usage of the word appeared fairly early on, it wouldn't become the main sense of the word for about another two centuries. When the British lexicographer Samuel Johnson published his massively influential dictionary in 1755, he defines apology primarily as a defense and secondarily as an excuse. However, his definition contains this insightful little note. Quote, Apology generally signifies rather excuse than vindication and tends rather to extenuate the fault than prove innocence. End quote. So, if that were the case, why wouldn't he have listed excuse as the primary sense of the word if that's what apology generally meant in his day? Well, Johnson certainly knew that the older meaning of apology was defense, and falling prey to the ever-tempting allure of the etymological fallacy, he probably asserted that the word's original meaning should be its true meaning. An etymological fallacy is just that. The belief that a word's original meaning is its true meaning. But as I've said on this podcast many times before, that's not how words work. Now, even though Shakespeare's usage of the word predates Johnson's definition by almost two centuries, it seems like the more modern of the two. Today, an apology, at least a sincere apology, is quite distinct from an excuse. While this is true, it's not hard to see the semantic overlap between the two usages because, indeed, sometimes an apology can be a mere excuse disguised as an expression of regret. By the 18th century, the sense of apology meaning excuse had evolved to mean regret, and the older sense of the word, meaning self-defensive rhetoric, had completely faded out. In fact, during this same century, the Latin loanword apologia was reborrowed from Latin into English with the meaning of defensive rhetoric. So, full circle on that one. 
in order to distinguish the defensive sense of apologia from the regretful sense of apology that had come into vogue and still remains in vogue, the word apologia remained unanglicized. In 1864, British theologian John Henry Newman published a book called Apologia pro sua vita, which is Latin for a defense of one's life. It was a bestseller during its day and still remains in print, and due to the success of this book, the word apologia has a religious, particularly a Christian, association today in English. The Christian connotation of apologia in English is probably why translators have avoided associating the term with English versions of classical Greek apologias, such as the Apology of Socrates. However, I still stand by the belief that rendering the Greek apologia as the English word apology is an inelegant solution, but hey, there are bigger problems out there in the world. Okay, that's it for this one. I hope you loved it. Again, if you want to help support the show, patreon.com slash wordsforgranted is your ticket. I've got a bunch of custom mugs that are looking to find a home. If that's not in your budget, but you still want to help out, I would love it if you left a review on Apple Podcasts or your podcast directory of choice. Those reviews really help the show grow. You can follow me on Facebook and Twitter, both of which are at Words for Granted. And if you have comments, questions, or concerns about the show, feel free to email me at wordsforgranted at gmail.com. All right, have a great day. I'll talk to you soon. credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.